A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Stop. Namuhi nui and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance ho. Later on, we're investigating a recent underwater volcano cold case. But first, 70% of all new pharmaceuticals come from so-called natural products, chemicals produced by living things which have been repurposed as medicines. But how do scientists go about finding these chemicals and figuring out what they do? William Ray talks to Michelle Princip from Waikato University. Michelle was named one of the world's most influential scientific minds of 2015 by Thomson Reuters for her work in organic chemistry. A natural product sounds a bit like something you'd read on the side of a shampoo bottle. But if you're talking to a chemist, the phrase has a very specific meaning. Secondary metabolites or natural products are molecules that are made or compounds that are made by an organism that aren't, as far as we know, directly necessary for life. So something like snake venom would be an example of that. Yes, so they're produced specifically by a type of organism for some other reason, and often we don't know what the reason is. This is Dr Michelle Princip. She's a professor of organic chemistry at Waikato University. You were were named one of the most influential scientists in your category, and you're rolling your eyes as I say say this. I am. was Was that quite nice? It was nice. It was nice. (laughs) Natural products or secondary metabolites might sound a bit esoteric at first, but Dr Princip says they're quite literally lifesavers. About 70% of all the pharmaceuticals in use today are either natural products directly or derived or inspired by natural products. So they're the best source of inspiration out there um, for molecules that can be useful to us. Nature's got a lot more imagination than chemists. And you look at two types of organisms in particular. You look at um, cyanobacteria, and I don't know how to pronounce the second one. I'm going to guess bryozoans. Pretty good. Yeah, bryozoans. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do. They're the the two types of organisms I like to focus on, though I do look at others as well. Cyanobacteria are a type of bacteria which photosynthesize. They're often responsible for toxic blooms in lakes and rivers. Bryozoans are a very weird kind of animal. In a lot of ways, they're similar to corals. The individual animals are microscopic, usually smaller than a millimetre across. And just like corals, they live in colonies made up of millions of individual animals and filter food out of the water using tentacles. Some of them look like delicate, colourful lace. Others basically look like giant balls of snot. But one thing bryozoans and cyanobacteria have in common is they produce a lot of those natural products. There are quite good reasons for that when you look at how they live, their lifestyle. They can't move, so can't swim away from a potential predator. They're competing heavily for space and nutrients. They don't have an immune system because they're too primitive. It makes sense that they have some sort of chemical defence to compete well in that environment. It sort of seems surprising in one way that sort of chemicals which are produced by these organisms would have applications outside of their immediate survival needs. 
And that's sometimes what people say. They might say, oh, um, why do you look at marine organisms for anti-cancer compounds because marine organisms don't get cancer? But um, the point is that they provoke some sort of response in another organism, and that's a chemical response. So the fact that they can um, stimulate another organism to produce chemicals or not produce chemicals, often it's related to the processes within that organism. And of course, if it's something like cellular growth, that's really important in something like cancer. But I mean, how do you know what you're looking for? How do you link up your sort of surprising chemicals, which you don't quite know necessarily exactly what they do with the particular application which cancer researchers are looking for or any other disease? We tend to start with the biological assay. So we tend to get an organism, extract it, and then test that extract against whichever biological process we're interested in. So let's say if it's um, anti-cancer, we would test it against a line of cancer cells and see if it had any anti-cancer activity. We would then just start to isolate the chemicals and at each step we would test that activity again so that hopefully we're isolating the chemical or chemicals responsible for that activity. And then obviously from there it's a very long process until something becomes an actual medicine. Most times, of course, it doesn't. You know, the hit rate is actually very low. But having said that, still 70% of pharmaceuticals are based on natural products or natural product derived. So it's still the best source of potential pharmaceuticals. Have you had, I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot, but have you had much success in sort of getting to that point where something that you've discovered has made it all the way to being a um, a medicine? Um, No, but we've had some compounds that we found in a bryozoan go all the way to in vivo testing, which is testing um, in animals. But at that point, unfortunately, they um, didn't work in vivo. And that's the huge barrier for most of any drugs really, is that it's all very well um, for a compound to be able to kill cells, like just a cell line of tumour cells. But once you impose metabolism on that, you've got many different cell types. You've got things like the compound has to get to the site of action. It becomes very, very complicated. The compound might be deactivated by the organism's metabolism. So um, that's probably the biggest barrier. I remember a great cartoon I saw that was about that. It was sort of like, remember any time someone tells you that um, a particular chemical kills cancer cells in a Petri dish, so does a bullet. (laughs) (laughs) That's so true. But, you know, the fact that it is capable of killing the cells in the Petri dish tells you that there's potential there. You've just got to realise how to harness it. Natural products aren't just useful in human diseases. Dr Michelle Princep is also working on a project using chemicals from marine algae to fight the kiwifruit vine-killing disease PSA. It was an idea that a group of us came up with. Um, This is scientists at University of Waikato and at Plant and Food Research, looking at organisms from the marine environment and applying perhaps some of the bioactivity observed there to the terrestrial environment. The theory being that organisms in the terrestrial environment have probably not encountered these compounds before and therefore are less likely perhaps to develop resistance or much slower to develop resistance to them if they work against the PSA. To put it another way, imagine PSA is a championship fighter and its opponents are the chemicals used to treat it. 
If you keep using a chemical derived only from terrestrial organisms, it's like you're putting opponents in the ring who are all boxers. They might fight differently, but they're all relatively similar, so PSA can learn to adapt. Maybe it gets knocked out a few times at first, but eventually it adapts to cope. Maybe the way to beat PSA is to find an opponent who fights totally differently. To do this, you go a long, long way away from PSA's hometown on land and find some chemicals produced by organisms in the sea. Now it's like someone who's been boxing for 20 years suddenly has to fight a person with a black belt in karate for the very first time. It's a completely different style of fighting, and PSA can't figure out how to deal with it, or at least it takes a lot longer until it evolves a strategy to fight back. So how far along are we towards finding our metaphorical karate black belt to take down PSA? We've got some species that we're interested in looking at. I can't say too much because it is commercially sensitive, but um, it is going pretty well at the moment in terms of we've got some good strong leads. This might sound like quite a frustrating line of work, spending years testing, distilling and retesting chemicals and then having to get past the even bigger hurdles of in vivo tests and finally human clinical trials. But before you even start, there's another challenge. You have to find the organisms which produce these chemicals. I'm very dependent on others who do the collecting for me who have a better eye than I do, certainly underwater. But I also have species that I know that we want to look at based on either their relationship to species we've looked at in the past or there are species that we've looked at in the past that we want to go back to for some reason. And what kind of, I mean, I, I get that this isn't what you do, but what, what kind of things are they looking for? Like what, what sort of makes you sit up and go, oh, that's an interesting bryozoan? Um, certainly novelty, so something they haven't seen before perhaps. Um, although that's probably less likely if you go into the same environment over and over again. Interactions, like we're quite interested at the moment and there's this type of organism called a nudibranch or a sea slug and we've um, noticed that there's a certain species that tends to feed on a certain bryozoan, so that sort of thing. These organisms are particularly good at sequestering or um, capturing the chemicals from their diet and using them in their own defence, so there's probably a reason why it wants to feed on this particular organism. Sort of like monarch butterflies, their caterpillars feed on swamp plants, so they're poisonous. Exactly, exactly. So they're, they've learnt to tolerate the chemicals in their own bodies, but they can use them in their defence. Dr Princip says that human influence on the environment is only making this line of work more difficult. I don't think people go out and harvest them for any reason, um, but I think the issue is maybe climate change to a certain extent. For example, one of the species that we particularly wanted to recollect over in Tauranga this summer, apparently it was a really odd summer in Tauranga. The water temperature, it was great for swimmers, the water temperature was maybe three degrees hotter than normal. And they had a lot of storm surges as well. And these organisms um, live on rocks, so I think a lot of the storm surges maybe washed some of them away. But also the warmer water for our particular species perhaps didn't suit it. So I'm just concerned that the changing temperatures conditions are changing so therefore the species that are present are changing and that's quite a concern for us. Thanks Michelle. That was chemist Michelle Princip from Waikato University and that story was produced by William Ray. Cheers William.
kei te whakaronga mai kwe ki tō tātou ao horihori, hei hōtaka e pāna ki tō tātou ao whānui. You're with Our Changing World on RNZ and I'm Alison Balance. Volcanoes are in the headlines. Fuego Volcano in Guatemala. Kilauea Volcano on Hawaii's Big Island. But despite the loss of lives and the large economic disruption, these two eruptions are actually small in the scale of things. Volcanic eruptions are rated on the logarithmic Volcanic Explosivity Index, going from zero, a very gentle eruption, to eight, which is known as a mega-colossal eruption. So far this century, the largest eruption on land has been a five. That was the 2011 eruption in Chile, which closed airspace around the southern hemisphere. But actually, there's been a second, more recent eruption that was also a five. It's the largest deep ocean eruption ever documented. And it happened right under our noses, in the New Zealand region. And if you're scratching your head right now going, what? Where? Then you're not alone. That's because this eruption happened underwater, halfway between here and Tonga. It was the Havre volcano on the Kermadec Arc, and it blew up in mid-July 2012. One of the geologists who's been studying the Havre eruption is James White from the University of Otago. He has a particular interest in underwater or submarine volcanoes. Now and for much of Earth's history, the majority of, of the Earth's surface has been underwater. And we know that, that a volcano erupting underwater faces a very different environment from those erupting on land. And I'm just really curious. We know also that eruptions on land that inter- interact with groundwater can behave very differently from those that don't. And it's all part of the same process of magma encountering water and doing various things. Sometimes it just hisses and makes a little bit of steam, and sometimes it blows up. Sometimes it does something in between. And although we have various models to explain different bits of those processes, we still lack any decent overarching model. And that's important for us, not, not just underwater. In fact, it's probably least important there in terms of hazards. But it's much more important for places like Auckland, is sort of my type example here, where some eruptions are very explosive because of particular ways of interacting with groundwater or shallow seawater, and others just produce lava flows. could sit there and watch them in your beach chair. be important to know, if we can, what controls that difference before setting up your beach chair. Because we don't get to see submarine or subaqueous volcanoes erupting, studying them is like investigating a geological cold case, finding and then piecing together a few clues to work out what might have happened. When we have a, an eruption on land, we can see what's happened in many cases, but for prehistoric eruptions, we, we can't see. And so what we do with a new eruption on land is we go and look both at the record of the observations during the eruption, but also at all of the particles that came out of it, and we try to use properties of those particles and those deposits to match back to the phenomena that we can see. And then when we look at the deposits of an ancient eruption, we can reconstruct the activities that were going on. That's what we want to do here, too. The challenge is that nobody's ever observed an eruption like this, anything like this scale, um, underwater. And probably never will. Probably while it was going on, there would have been too much ash in the water to see far enough to get an idea. So really, the deposit is all that we have to work with. And this is the first time there's been a large subaqueous eruption where people knew exactly where it took place and were able to go there and sample it. 
eruptions that take place completely underwater. There's been two that have been observed uh, by people in submarines that were studying the volcano and more or less happened to be there when, when it was erupting. And these were, these were small. The eruptions would fit in this room. And there's this one. In terms of submarine eruptions, this is the best we've ever had. This is PhD student Aaron Murch. In ancient deposits, we can look at what's left on the seafloor. And then there are a few observations of eruptions at the surface where you just see pumice coming up to the surface and a sort of a vapor bloom forming, but no seafloor observation. So this is beyond anything else that we've got. It was a pretty big eruption. And the other interesting thing is that we didn't know about it until long afterwards. So if we'd had an eruption this size on land, everybody would have known about it instantly. But instead, one of the products of the eruption was a, a raft of floating pumice. This floating rock on top of the ocean was the, the main signal to the rest of the world that, that something had taken place. How big was that raft? That raft started off about 400 square kilometers and was probably a couple of meters thick. And that formed between two satellite images, so sometime within 24 hours. If there was a similar-sized volcano on land, what might a comparable one be? Purely in terms of the amount of material that was erupted, the uh, 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens is comparable. The Mount St. Helens eruption was a large explosive eruption which produced a lot of ash and pumice. The giant raft of pumice produced by the Havre volcano was widely reported at the time. We featured it here on Our Changing World, with award-winning science communicator Rebecca Priestley reporting from a Navy boat which diverted to collect some of the floating pumice. Three months after the eruption in October 2012, the Niwa research boat Tangaroa scanned the volcano, parts of which are nearly a kilometre underwater. This resulted in an initial rough map of what it looked like post-eruption. Then in 2015, an international expedition returned to the volcano to collect rock samples and make a much more detailed map of the volcano. This map was made by a, a, a group from the US, from Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, running what's called an autonomous underwater mapping vehicle, so an, an AUV. And what it does is it goes down on a remote-controlled path and flies around on its own about 100 metres off the seafloor and collects very high-resolution sonar data, and then periodically comes back to the surface and downloads all that data. And it spent 12 days doing this, 12 entire days. So you had a very rough map before, now you've got a really beautifully, finely detailed map. Exactly. We can see the shape of each individual lava flow. We can see the small-scale detail telling us the directions that they were flowing. Uh, we can see how they've spread out across the floor of the caldera. On the map, you can see these sort of dimples around the, the caldera. Uh, and these are actually sort of a couple metre size blocks that you can actually see. So resolution, an order of magnitude above anything that we've had for a volcano like this before. Both of the main products of this eruption are unusual for a submarine eruption, for how we've thought about submarine eruptions. So the large amount of very fine ash is, was unexpected. And the other thing that we weren't expecting was to find the entire seafloor littered with these pumices that didn't float and instead sank back to the seafloor. And these things are about the size of, an, of a small SUV, most of them. And there's millions of these things. So this eruption produced a pumice raft, and there was also a vapor plume going into the atmosphere that was spotted at the same time. 
And so that indicates we're transferring enough heat to the ocean surface to make that vapor plume, which extended at least 70 kilometers. And we brought enough material to make this big pumice raft. But underwater, stuff that we wouldn't have known about if we didn't go on this dive, we were depositing these millions of car-sized pumice fragments. And this fairly even blanket of very fine ash that extends well beyond the area that we studied. I mentioned earlier that it takes energy to make fine ash, and so normally we would look at a lot of fine ash like that and say, this is a very explosive eruption. If we focus only on the large pumice in the pumice raft, it's possible to develop an entirely satisfactory explanation for those two things that doesn't involve ash at all, and the ash could be an entirely separate event. So this is where we are now on sort of trying to decide exactly what went on here. James and Aaron are part of an international team of geologists working on the complicated Havre eruption. One of their big questions is, how energetically explosive was that 2012 eruption? As well as mapping the volcano, the 2015 expedition was able to collect samples of the pumice covering the sea floor, including one of the larger lumps. And Aaron has been using small bits of that pumice to find out more about the big question of how the ash was produced. This is actually a piece of the giant pumice that we well, was brought up to the surface as a whole. So pumice, tell me a little bit about pumice. Uh, so pumice is basically a volcanic rock in which gases come out of the rock and formed bubbles. Uh, and so it's sort of, it's a foam of rock. Then you've got another piece over there which doesn't look the same. Yes, yeah. So this is heavier, not not maybe as heavy as you might expect of rock. Uh, but so this is where we've we've taken samples from from this eruption, uh, remelted them in the lab, and then simulated an eruption to produce ash and compare the laboratory produced ash with the natural ash to see if we can isolate the processes which are actually sort of generating the ash that was erupted. So talk me through what temperature you have to take it through and how you make it basically erupt again. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) So this was originally crushed up into granules and then just put into a a sort of circular kiln. And then this was heated up to about 1,200 Kelvin. Which is what in Celsius? So that would be around 900 degrees Celsius. That gives you what, then liquid rock? It's sort of liquid rock. On, on the top of this, if you look at it in the right light, you can see little circles. So the, the circles are where, when it was being melted in the crucible, you could poke it with something, and it, would, it wouldn't flow like a normal rock. It's, it's very, very sticky. Like an old toothpaste or something. And so this is something that happened also later in, later in the eruption at St. Helens. It pushed up what they call a spine or a dome of rock, or it's what made Mount Tarawera the shape that it is. It's a very viscous, sticky lava that just sort of piles up on the surface. So once you'd made it that thick, sticky, lava-like substance in the lab, then what did you do with it? So the objective of that was then to test how water would interact with the the magma. In the experiment, water would be poured on top of the, the melt, and then a sort of gas would be injected from below and the the melts and water mixture would interact and then be thrown out of the crucible generating ash as it did and, <laughs> and what does that ash tell you one of the things we think about typically in in geology is 
Um, if we have a sand or a dust or something, we know that bigger particles take more energy to move than small particles. But when you're breaking up magma, the opposite is sort of sort of true. If, if you want to make a million little particles rather than two big ones, it takes more energy. So knowing the size of all the particles tells us something about the amount of energy that had to be expended to break the magma into that many different small particles. And one of the results of Aaron's work was to um, document that a lot of this ash was extremely tiny particles, 20 to 30 microns, many, many of them smaller than that still. So when, when collecting it with a, a scoop on the seafloor by the remote submarine uh, called Jason, um, this stuff would leave scrapes behind like you'd been dragging your fingers through modeling clay. So that's one sort of information. And the other sort of information is to look at the actual shapes of the particles. So if you if you break apart a magma that's very fluid, like, like at Hawaii or something, often you get long stringy particles that have been pulled apart as they're being torn from the magma or flying through the air. Uh, whereas if you have a, a more explosive eruption, often you'll be able to break that same material into small angular particles. So siliputty is one of these substances is a bit, a bit like magma. Um, if you pull it slowly, it stretches, and you can make a long fluidal shape, or you can break it quickly, same material, um, but you've exceeded its, its ability to deform in an elastic manner, and instead it just breaks. Volcanic magma is the same, same thing, and so we can look at the mix between stretched out fragments and broken fragments, and that gives us some additional information about the expenditure of energy necessary to make that, that population of particles, and also the rate. So, so just like silly putty, if we, can, if, if we can allow time for the ash to get stretched out, then we can get a long, strung-out shape, relatively long, given that these are only 30 microns. One of the unusual things we found in the, the Harvard eruption was these, these hair-like particles and other ones which we've called fluidal. Uh, so despite this magma, like in the remelting experiments, being very sticky, uh, a lot of the ash grains uh, in the harbor eruption have these very sort of fluidal shapes which seem to suggest that they were almost deforming like a quite a fluid liquid, like a raindrop as it, as it comes through the, the atmosphere. It deforms into the, that characteristic shape. But in the case of the, the ash, it's obviously been sort of erupted out at quite high velocities. Uh, so this is quite unusual, and it's not really been documented in other eruptions. It's quite an exciting result of the, the ash of the, the Harvard eruption. So some of what happens when a volcano erupts is, in a sense, chemical, because it depends on the particular composition of the magma coming up, and some of it's physical. That's right. The chemical part is sort of baked in before the eruption, so... so this was rhyolite, it was always going to be rhyolite, so, so nothing was going to change that. The fact that it came out 900 meters underwater rather than at the surface means that it was under higher pressure. So that's just the consequence of having a whole lot of water sitting on top that's of it. That's right. Or, or, you know, it could be on Venus in just a heavier atmosphere, so it's, it's the consequence of a higher pressure. But the other fact, exactly as you say, is that it was water. It's the specific thing that raises the pressure. So water does other things. It quenches magma more quickly it can cause thermal shock that will cause magma to break apart. And so we're, these are some of the effects we're trying to, to tease out of the information from the fragments. What was water's role in an eruption underwater? 
We know it wasn't everything because the pumice already had gas. That's not related to the water that it erupted into. That's related to the chemistry, uh, specifically the volatile content before eruption. But there are many other parts of the eruption that will be intimately related to this eruption in water. The pressure, which has an effect on the magma's ability to flow, um, but, but also very much the, the thermal and physical effects of erupting into water rather than air. So what, one of the key things about the non-explosive model for the pumice, the large pumice on the seafloor and the pumice in the raft, is that if you have something with the density of this piece of pumice sitting underwater, it's going to float, right? That means you don't need an explosive eruption. You can just e erupt it into the water and it's just going to float away. Subarily, if we see a big piece of pumice like that that's been carried three kilometers away, we know something had to throw it through the air. But here it doesn't. It could have just floated. Thanks, James. That was James White from the University of Otago. And we also heard from PhD student Aaron Murch. And that's all we've got time for. But if you'd like to listen to those stories again or see the map of the Havre volcano that James and Aaron were talking about, just head to our webpage rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You can also sign up for our weekly email newsletter at the bottom of the page and listen back to previous episodes. Don't forget, we're also a podcast and you can subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, Stitcher and Spotify. On Facebook and Twitter, we are RNZ Science. Thanks for your company. I'm Alison Balance. Bye for now. Kia pai topo. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.